My name is Rachel Toon, everyone. I am, in fact, the other Toon, clearly the better looking one. Um, back from exile and uh, the, the East Coast, and it is good to be home for a little bit, back in the home court uh, with the home team. I have to pay rent when I come home, so Pops is on vacation. Here we are. Uh, and so my first assignment out of the gate is to kick off the next sermon series for you, which is Get Outside. And clearly we don't mean that literally because Canada is burning down. So what we are talking about, though, is evangelism. So the word on the street back in the East Coast is that you've all been talking a lot about going beyond these walls in the last few months. And also I hear that your pledge cards and your commitments have proven that that's a real value to you. So uh, congratulations. That was really exciting news uh, to hear. But now we're going to move into phase two. Because uh, when you go beyond these walls, you're going to end up outside, quite naturally. And that's, it, it's thrilling as we dream about what a transformed gig harbor could look like. And it's a little scary, because we're going to get out of the safe zone. But don't freak out just yet, because in our text this morning, we're going to look at the moment when Jesus launches the church, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. So, hear, literally, hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After his suffering, he showed himself to, these, to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they met together. They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were standing there looking up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, what you doing? Why do you stand here looking up into the heavens? This same Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will come back the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So throughout uh, my time in my, during my seminary education, I worked at what was naturally the most logical establishment for a budding pastor to be. Now is a, a, um, a jazz bar, obviously. <laughs> and when I first started, I was a server, you know, dining room and, and such, and, and that was great and for a couple years, and I actually knew how to do that. And on one occasion, this last fall, I got a call from a coworker of mine. Said, I got to take my kid to the dentist. Will you come in for me on Monday? I said, yeah, sure. No worries. So I show up at work, and then this is a weird sort of thing, because see, there's this other guy who was setting up the dining room. And I was like, hmm, if Healy is setting up the dining room, who's the bartender? <clears throat> what if I'm the bartender? Sure enough. And as that terrifying thought flashed before my mind, in walked my Italian mafia boss. And I, I say that in jest, but 
you don't really know in New England? <laughs> Maybe. And so he comes in and goes, Ah, oh, Rach, I didn't know you knew how to buy tins. I was like, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for years. Uh, and I kid you not, I prayed right then and there, Lord, I know you're pretty good at the whole water into wine thing. How are you with vodka? <laughs> Turns out he's awesome. And much like the wedding of Cana, it's funny how Jesus can use a funny situation and a funny job uh, to introduce me to people who would never set foot uh, in his church. The point being is this. There are times in our lives when we find ourselves asked to do jobs for which we are supremely unqualified. So if the thought of evangelism makes you seize up inside, if you feel inept and inadequate and with no idea what's going on and with too much baggage, you are an excellent, excellent company. Because Jesus' best friends felt exactly the same way. If you go back to verse 6, if you're following along, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples still missed the memo. Three years with Jesus, they still don't get it. They are really confused by the whole resurrection thing, ascension thing. What are we supposed to share? They still think that Jesus might restore a political kingdom and not a spiritual one. So they just totally didn't get it. And then if you skip ahead, verses 10 through 11, we see angels have to quite literally pull their heads out of the clouds and focus them on the task at hand. And then in the rest of chapter 1, it's not about them sharing the gospel. It's not about them changing the world. It's not even about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen until chapter 2. What the rest of the chapter narrates is how the disciples figure out how to move forward from Judas and his betrayal and it's really gruesome death. It's dealing with some very serious relational baggage. So, if you think you are hopelessly unqualified for the work of evangelism, I've got news for you. You absolutely are. And so am I. And Jesus asks us to do it anyway. And so for our time this morning, we're going to focus on one little verse. Uh, and that's verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is the verse that it's the roadmap for the rest of Acts and the rest of history, right? That's what the gospel does. It moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we could spend months just unpacking that. But today, we're going to focus on the wild card because one of these destinations is not like the other. Any guesses from the house? Anyone feeling brave? Ah, I think somebody read the sermon ahead of time, but that's okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about Samaria, because see, Samaria's different. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is is their posse, okay? All their friends, all their neighbors, all the people they work with, all the people know all the people, I mean, family. Jerusalem, we like it. It's Gig Harbor, it's home. Jerusalem needs Jesus, God bless them. And then there's Judea, and that can be, you know, the state, or maybe the county, that Jerusalem sits in, it's the Pierce County to the, to the Gig Harbor. And not immediate acquaintances, but it is all the people who do know your people, and it's the same turf, the same culture. And Judea needs to know about Jesus. And then there's the ends of the earth, which is pretty self-explanatory. And let it be known, it takes profound courage to do that, to go across the world to share the name of Jesus. Uh, I heard just this week from a very dear friend of mine from seminary, who's serving the Lord undercover in a country I can't name, whose best friend was just executed in the capital. 
So keep her in your prayers, if you will. Um, it, is, it takes so much faith to go to the ends of the earth. And there's something alluring and exciting about the ends of the earth, isn't there? And it's pretty easy for us to imagine why the foreign and the unknown are going to need Jesus. But dang it, then there's Samaria. Here's the thing with Samaritans, is they're near enough, they're close enough for us to fully understand how much we don't like them. Okay, they are near us, but they're not like us. And they're not just different, man. They just mess everything up. See, Samaritans were the living reminder that Israel failed. They failed to obey God. Because Samaritans were the descendants of intermarriage between Jews and the occupying Assyrians. And that was bad news. So if you met someone who was half Jew, half Nazi, it's kind of, ugh. You know, that's what that, that's the icky, that's kind of what that felt like. And they weren't just half-breeds either. They were heretics, straight up. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, just kind of tossed the rest of it. They built a competing site of worship on a different mountain God did not sanction that caused a ton of political turmoil. And on a really bad day, they dedicated that temple to a pagan deity. So they have just been messing everything up since forever. They're not just different. Samaritans were destructive, at least in the eyes of the Jews. And here's the thing. Samaritans are in our lives. They're not just different. They're the ones whose views we feel are just destructive. Because they voted not just begrudgingly, but enthusiastically for Trump. Or for Hillary. Okay? How does that make you feel, right? Maybe we're thinking about it a little bit. They are rabid activists for LGBTQ rights or against Planned Parenthood. They are passionate postmodernists who ascribe to a theology that does not support the virgin birth or the resurrection. They are from a completely different socioeconomic class that does not hold the same values or the same standards as your own. Basically, wherever you fall on the spectrum, they are playing for the other team. And Lord knows they need Jesus, but man, do I have to be the one to fill them in. Somebody else do that. So when I, when I first rolled into Boston... Three years ago, my first order of business was a job, because I was broke. And I knew that if I did not get off that holy hill, I was just going to suffocate around all those seminarians. God bless them, but oh my lord. There's one here who I still love, but the rest, you know. And I figured an Italian restaurant and a jazz bar were going to be, that's a a decent solution. And I can assure you, it solved the problem quite readily. And I can't do this place justice without describing the owner to you. We will call him Frank. And Frank so far surpasses all Boston Italian stereotypes. My housemates didn't believe me until they met him in person. Um, He's got a Boston accent so wicked thick you could cut it with a knife. And this is not an exaggeration. It's awesome. And his creative pride and joy is his tiramisu, which will change your life. And he uh, plays teardrop bass in a three-pot harmony cover band. It's actually pretty good, as a matter of fact. He's not terribly concerned with state and federal regulations. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I walked into work one time, and he had a circular saw in the dining room. <laughs> Boss, what are you, we're going to open in like a half an hour. What, what you doing? Oh, you, uh, you see the wine over there in the corner. The wiring, yeah, yeah. I may put that in without a building permit and the inspector's coming in this week, so I gotta, 
make it disappear. <laughs> sure enough, if you build a box around it and paint it the same color as the wall, away it goes. <laughs> Lest you were wondering. And to use Frank's own words, he's a, quote, evangelistic atheist, unquote. True story. And I've learned that people aren't often evangelistic atheists without good reasons. And in Frank's case, he lost his four-year-old daughter to a rare genetic blood disorder 15 years ago. And his soul has just never, never recovered from that. So all that to say, I somehow landed myself... <laughs> around a group of people who had a history, values, and a culture not just different from my own, but completely outside of my own realm of experience. And that's not even counting the language barrier. Because Boston has this thing where, like, the R's drop off at the end of words, and then they reappear in words that they just don't belong in at all. <laughs> and then there's the use of a lot of vocabulary I was unfamiliar with and had to sneak out back and look up on Urban Dictionary that I can't use in church. (laughs) All that to say is, if you land in Samaria, it gets awkward and it gets messy real fast. And the thing is, Jesus just wasn't very afraid of those things. Uh, If we, you remember the conversation he had in John 4? That's with the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay, and that got weird real fast because Jesus was a man and he was a Jew, so that wasn't supposed to happen. And then there's a lot of miscommunication over the whole living water thing, like, that took a while to figure out. And it was just kind of awkward for a little bit, but that's not where the conversation ended. And the fact is that Samaria is a very uncomfortable place for us to be. And Jesus commands that we go there. So if we're going to go into Samaria, it's going to get awkward. And we're going to have to be intentional, because it's not the kind of place that you you voluntarily go, or you even accidentally end up if you take a wrong turn. It's the kind of place you deliberately avoid. See, after Jesus' command in Acts 1, the disciples didn't get there until Acts 8, eight chapters down the line. And the only reason that happened is persecution made them go. (laughs) They weren't terribly enthusiastic about it. But in John 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's one of the first verses in the chapter. He had to go. His interactions were intentional. They were deliberate. They were premeditated. And I wonder what it would look like if Chapel Hill Presbyterians intentionally passed through Samaria. If that would mean genuinely befriending the transgender woman at the YMCA and getting to just really know and love and value her exactly as she is. And through that relationship, introduce her to the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe that's looking for ways to engage our Spanish-speaking community and to brave some, some definite linguistic discomfort, but to bridge some, some cultural barriers. Or maybe that's putting your kids in sports in the Key Peninsula or Tacoma or Port Orchard just to strategically place yourself in a community that you would otherwise just never interact with. See, Jesus was intentional. And the disciples eventually figured out how to be. And the world changed. What do you think we could do to Puget Sound if we did that? So, if we're going to Samaria, it's going to be awkward. And we're going to have to be intentional. But there's something else worth knowing about Samaria. And that it is full of surprises. It really is. And just kind of unimaginable delights 
actually. See, after that, that funny conversation with Jesus in John 4, that Samaritan woman became the first evangelist recorded in Scripture. And through her, an entire town experienced redemption. And when Philip finally did mosey over to Samaria in Acts 8, he encountered a people starving for knowledge of the gospel and who responded to Jesus with much joy, as the scripture says. And when I had nowhere to go on Thanksgiving, my Italian evangelistic atheist, mafia boss, fully incorporated me into his own family. And as I stand before you today, I can tell you that once you've had Thanksgiving lasagna and Thanksgiving cannolis, there is no going back. (laughs) The rest of life is just known as lasagna. There's no hope afterwards. Man, that's good stuff. And I can also tell you that I've often seen more love and service and sacrifice from my pagan co-workers than I sometimes saw at the seminary. And the reason is this, because Samaritans are a hot mess, and they are made in the image of Jesus, just like you and just like me. Praise God. But then we got to ask how we're going to swing this, because Samaria is so foreign, it's so different, and when, if we go, we, just, we will inevitably say and do something stupid. And how are we supposed to be effective witnesses for Jesus in a place and in a culture that's just so out of our depth? And that's where you got to go back and look at what Jesus actually says in Acts 1. He says, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be witnesses. It's not just, no, you're just going to go and be witnesses. No, you've been anointed with the power and the authority of the Spirit of God himself. Do you believe that? You're a Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have the power. And I think we, we just forget that Jesus, yeah, he was 100% God, yes, but he's also 100% man, which means he did not have preaching, teaching, healing, demon-casting, evangelistic superpowers. It didn't work that way. The only reason Jesus could do that was because of his complete dependence and his intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has died and he has risen and he has given us access to that same power and that same relationship with his Spirit. And remember, the gospel is not really a message, it's a person, And you know Jesus. He's changed your heart. You've seen him transform your life. You believe him when he promises that he's going to come back and rescue the world one day. And if Jesus has changed your heart, then you just, you know everything you need to know. Don't get so bent out of shape. You know what you need to know. And the Holy Spirit will give you the courage and the gentleness and the words that you're going to need in Samaria. And know this. If you do not go, no one will replace you. Nobody can do your job. Sure, God will bring about his kingdom with or without you. But if you don't go, there will be an eternal gap in that mosaic. This is what it means to be a Christian. To introduce people to the transformational goodness and power and love of Jesus. Nobody in history has ever had your position, your influence, your relationships your place in the world. No one can replace you. So if you don't go, who will? But again, we do have to ask, what does this actually look like? How does it, what does it mean for Presbyterians to go into Samaria? And I'll leave you with one more little jazz bar tale. So when I 
was in New England. I attended an old school New England church, man. Old South Presbyterian. 1756, George Washington showed up on the doorstep. And we got, you got the, the slide up there? Yeah, we got George Whitfield in our basement under the pulpit next to the Christmas decorations. He was the revivalist preacher. Uh, and got the other one over there. Yeah, we touched him. We touched his head. Um, it's actually a cast. I didn't know that at the time. And it kind of took up a... But sure enough. Regardless, I digress. Old school New England, all that to say. And I was uh, working a shift behind the bar one night when in walked three of my elders. They had driven 45 minutes just to come and say hi and hang out for a little bit. And so I brought some drinks over for him, and uh, Beth asked me to add some olive juice to her Bombay Sapphire Martini. And I said, I was sorry, I didn't know that she'd wanted it dirty. And she said, oh, it's okay, I didn't order it that way. I just, I just don't like to say it. <laughs> Regardless, um, she, she did enjoy it when, when we fixed it. Um, they stayed for a while, and my pagan co-workers were just enthralled by them. They were so funny. They were just so interested in their lives. So different from the kinds of people that roll through a, a New England jazz bar, as you could probably well imagine. And when the Old South delegation left, they left this stupid, generous tip. And also a lasting impression on my unbelieving co-workers as to what Presbyterians are really like, which is funny and loyal and profoundly generous. See, if we're going to go into Samaria, brothers and sisters, we may have to order a couple dirty martinis. It'll be okay. But you have been anointed with the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes with you, and he goes before you. So get up and go. Get up and go, my brothers and sisters. Risk that awkward. Be intentional. Delight in all of those surprises. And let the Holy Spirit use you to change the world for his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.